1: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, Senate Republicans shut the door on further action in President Trump's impeachment trial, while 2020 Democrats sprint to the finish line ahead of Monday's Iowa caucuses. Plus, the Trump administration steps up its efforts to contain the coronavirus here at home as the U.S. prepares to evacuate and then quarantine more Americans from the epicenter of the crisis. It's all over but the closing arguments and a final vote to dismiss the articles of impeachment. Democrats see it this way.
2: To not allow a witness, a document, no witnesses, no documents in an impeachment trial is a perfidy. It's a grand
3: tragedy.
1: But with only two Republicans joining them to support any additional trial proceedings, the result is all but inevitable. We'll talk with House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff and ask him what's next in the Ukraine quid pro quo investigation. Will House Democrats subpoena former National Security Advisor John Bolton to appear before Congress? Plus, as the number of coronavirus cases explodes in China, we'll talk with National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien about efforts to keep it from spreading in the U.S. Then, on to politics. 2020 Democrats stuck in Washington for the impeachment trial. Race to Iowa for the final hours of campaigning before the Monday night caucuses. Former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg is right behind frontrunners Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden in our new battleground tracker. We'll talk with him about his chances for a win Monday. How about Buttigieg?
0: Buttigieg. They call him Mayor Pete. You know why? Because nobody can pronounce his name. Nobody has any idea. Buttigieg.
1: President Trump hit the stump in Iowa, too. But with a lock on the Iowa Republican caucuses, he's working on the general election.
0: We're going to win the great state of Iowa, and it's going to be a historic landslide.
2: And if we don't win, your farms are going to hell, I can tell you right now.
1: Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel will be here. We'll ask her what the Republicans are focusing on while the Democrats duke it out. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. The number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. has risen to eight. A University of Massachusetts Boston student who traveled recently to Wuhan is the latest to be diagnosed. In China, the number of deaths stands at at least 304, with more than 2,000 new cases reported in the past 24 hours. The State Department has warned Americans against traveling to China, and the U.S. is making arrangements for the nearly 1,000 Americans who are still in the epicenter of the crisis in Hubei province to fly home. Once they get here, they will be quarantined at one of four U.S. military bases for two weeks. There are also new restrictions going into effect at 5 p.m. today. Any American citizen returning from China will be asked to self-quarantine and be monitored for symptoms of the coronavirus. If you are not an American citizen traveling from China, you will not be allowed to enter the U.S., we begin this morning with President Trump's National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien. Good morning to you, Mr. Ambassador.
4: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: How satisfied are you with the information that the Chinese government is sharing? Do we know where this virus came from?
4: Uh, we don't now. Uh, we're, we're working with the, the Chinese authorities, their health authorities, and the World Health Organization yeah. and our own folks to, to get to the bottom of it. Uh, so far, the Chinese have been more transparent, uh, certainly than in past crises, and we appreciate that, and we continue to Offer assistance to the Chinese. We've offered to send over CDC and other U.S. medical and public health professionals. And uh, we have not heard back uh, yet from the Chinese on those offers, but we're prepared to continue to cooperate with them.
1: There were a number of reports, though, uh, that local government officials in Wuhan didn't flag this and, in fact, may have covered up the extent of this virus. Is Beijing being transparent now?
4: Well, we, we hope so, and, uh, and we've asked them for transparency, and we're starting to see uh, your reporter uh, uh, in the intro had the, the new numbers. Uh, I think there were 2,000 more cases. We're up to almost 15,000 uh, cases of infection in China, uh, I think 300 deaths, and we have eight here in the U.S. So right now there's, there's no reason for Americans to, to panic. This is something that uh, is a low risk, we think, in the U.S., but, President Trump, from the day he took office, made protecting Americans and keeping them safe, whether it 's from terrorists or criminal organizations or from viruses like the new uh, novel coronavirus uh, that is top priority, so so we 're taking steps to keep Americans safe and and the government's function in that direction.
1: Now, China has allowed some <clears throat> World Health Organization experts in, but you are saying specifically you want American members of the CDC on the ground. What would their role be, and why is China saying no?
4: Uh, we don't know that. Look, we know what the role of our folks would be. We've got a, a very probably the top public health uh, officials in the world are, are resident here in the United States with the CDC and the NIH. We've got tremendous expertise. We've got the greatest medical system. Uh, in the world, and and look, this is a worldwide concern. Uh, we want to help our Chinese uh, uh, colleagues if we can, and uh, and we'll see. We've made the offer, and we'll we'll see if they accept the offer. But uh, but this is it, this is serious. It's serious for China. It's serious for the region and for the world. Uh, that's why we're taking the steps we're taking to protect Americans right now.
1: And you need American boots on the ground, essentially doctors, to actually be able to trust the information.
4: Uh, look, I, th- I think we can be helpful uh, if we're on the ground right now. The Chinese are, are providing information to us, and we're taking that uh, for what it's worth. But at the same time, we're monitoring ourselves. And, and what we're especially doing is monitoring the situation here in the United States uh, to make sure Americans are, are continue to be safe from this virus.
1: You know, the Chinese government has taken umbrage at some remarks by U.S. officials. Um, And we know the U.S. and Chinese economies are interdependent in many, many ways. But this is what the Commerce Secretary said this week.
2: It does give businesses yet another thing to consider because you had SARS, you have the African swine virus there, now you have this. It's another risk factor that people need to take into account. So I think it will help to accelerate. The return of jobs to North America.
1: Is that a fair description of the impact of this virus?
4: Well, I think it's a fair description. I mean, this is a public health crisis. Uh, this is not a uh, uh, a trade issue. We just signed a great fa- phase one trade deal with China. We're negotiating a saying, phase two uh, deal.
1: He's saying it will help the U.S. economy at the expense of mm. China.
4: No, I, I don't think that's what Wilbur's saying. I think what the Secretary of Commerce is saying is that we've got our our supply lines extended very far in, into places where we can't mitigate the risk always, either political risk or health risk or that sort of thing. So American companies for many years pushed their supply chains out to Asia. I think what uh, Commerce Secretary Ross is saying is there's a danger. There's a risk factor in doing that. And, and wouldn't it be better if we had uh, supply chains and factories here in the U.S. Uh, so, so that our folks weren't weren't, weren't, weren't it, facing some of the risks that you face when you're overseas? So. The Chinese
1: officials have, have said they didn't take that in the way you're characterizing it. And the ambassador here actually just yesterday was saying it sounds like some are saying there's an economic benefit.
4: Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's how the president views it. I don't think that's okay. how Secretary Ross views it. I think what what, what Secretary Ross is pointing out, though, is that when you extend a supply chain across the world to try and get cheaper labor uh, and cheaper the cost of goods, that there's all, there's a risk in doing that. And he's he's saying that American companies ought to think twice uh, before they extend the supply chain uh, halfway across the world where you do have health risk. You've got political instability risk. You've got uh, you know economic risk of, of mm-hmm. technology transfers. Uh, so, so there are a lot of reasons to, to consider keeping our, our factories and our jobs here in America. We think that's, that's good for the country, but that's, that's, that, that, that doesn't have anything to do with this virus. I mean, obviously, it's a terrible thing for the Chinese people. It's terrible for the world, and we want to do everything we can, to, to, and the president wants to do everything he can tell President Xi and to help the Chinese people deal with this terrible health public health crisis.
1: Yeah, um, we know the markets and the world are watching what happens with this virus. But I also want to ask you about um, the National Security Council and this decision we heard this week from the White House that there's an effort to block at least some of John Bolton's book, the man who had your job uh, before you stepped into the role. The NSC says it contains significant amounts of classified material, and his lawyers say that's just not true. Have you reviewed the book personally?
4: Yes, so, so, so here's the thing. The, the book is, I, I want to be very careful about talking about this because it could end up in judicial proceedings or, or, or litigation. Uh, the national- Meaning the White
1: House is prepared to fight this to block the release well, well, of the book?
4: Well, here, here's the thing. When, when Ambassador Bolton came in, or when I came in, and you're read into sensitive, compartmented, classified uh, programs, and, and you see classified documents, and you're involved in meetings where state secrets are discussed, uh, you you sign a document, a non-disclosure agreement, saying right. that you won't disclose that material. If you want to write a book afterwards, or you want to give a speech, or publish an article you have to put that through the review process, and there are career professionals who go through the manuscript and very carefully and determine whether there's classified material. Right. They've been in touch with Ambassador Bolton's lawyer, uh, and, and they'll continue to be in touch Since with Since that letter this week? Yeah, they'll, 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 they'll continue to be in touch. They, they, you've seen the letter. Uh, they'll continue to be in touch with Ambassador Bolton's letter because what we need to do as the National Security Council is to make sure that state secrets and, and important classified information that could jeopardize American lives are not released. Did and, anyone uh, on the
1: NSC leak it? No, and have uh, you asked members of the NSC yeah. that question?
4: I, I said this before on the record. I, I'm very confident that that the, the, the leaks of that book did not come from the NSC. Is, can
1: anyone on the NSC verify what the pres, what, what Bolton has said? I mean, what about uh, John Eisenberg, uh, who is legal counsel for NSC?
4: Well, well, and
1: was there at the time? Did Bolton memorialize these conversations? He says he witnessed between the president and others telling him to get involved? I, I mean, I, th- I think that's
4: something that's beginning to be investigated, what, what kind of notes Ambassador Bolton has or had or, or didn't have. Uh, and, and so, but what the president has said, at least with, with respect to the uh, the allegation that uh, uh, Ambassador Bolton made that he told him to call Zelensky, the president has said that did not happen. I believe that uh, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Barr and, and Mike Pompeo have said that that did not happen. And so, look, it's, it's, always, it's always disappointing when someone who mm-hmm. has access to the most confidential, close information and a close yeah. relationship with the president, decides to leave the White House and do a tell-all book. Well, uh, and and, and they're, they're, look, if someone, has pol- if someone has political differences, that's fine, but we've got to be okay. careful about the classified information.
1: Ambassador, thank you.
4: Great to be with you. Thank you. We
1: turn now to the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff. Good morning to you, Mr. Chairman. Good morning. Uh, Jerry Saib of The Wall Street Journal wrote, unlike past impeachment debates over Presidents Nixon and Clinton, this one uncovered little to no common ground between the two parties. What do you think this impeachment accomplished?
2: Well, what's remarkable is you now have uh, Republican senators coming out and saying, yes, the House proved its case. The House proved the corrupt scheme that they charged in the article's of impeachment. The president did withhold hundreds of millions of dollars from an ally to try to coerce that ally into helping him cheat in the next election. Uh, that's pretty remarkable when you now have uh, senators on both sides of the aisle admitting the House made its case, and the only question is should the president be removed for office because he's been found guilty of these offenses. I think it's enormously important that the country understand exactly what this president did, and we have proved it. I also think it's important that the Senate take the next step, having found him guilty, if indeed that's what they have found, they need to remove him from office because he is threatening to still cheat in the next election by soliciting foreign interference.
1: But you know the votes aren't there to remove the president from office. As you said, Senators Rubio, Alexander, Portman have all said in some way or another, they found the actions of the president inappropriate, but not enough to oust him. So the bottom line here seems to be that the president will get away with what they're calling inappropriate. What are Democrats going to do? What do you do next?
2: Well, first of all, to call uh, solicitation coercion blackmail of a foreign a power, an ally at war by withholding military aid to get help in cheating the next election, merely inappropriate, uh, doesn't begin to do justice to the, the gravity of this president's misconduct. A uh, misconduct that I think undermined our national security as well as that of our ally and threatens the, integrity of, the uh, integrity of our elections. Now if the senators still won't act, even though they know the truth now, even though they've acknowledged what the president did, look. I still think it's enormously important uh, that the president was impeached because the country is moving away from its democratic ideals. Uh, And I think by standing up to this president, as we have, by making the case to the American people, by exposing his wrongdoing, we are helping to slow the momentum away from our democratic values uh, until that uh, progress away from democracy can be arrested and we can return to some sense of normalcy. Uh, and support for the founders' ideal. But I'm not letting the senators off the hook. Uh, We're still going to go into the Senate this week and make the case why this president needs to be removed. It will be up to the senators to make that final judgment, Mm -hmm. and the senators will be held accountable for it.
1: But given where the numbers are now, you've said in the past you would consider subpoenaing John Bolton in the House. Is it inevitable? Will you subpoena him?
2: I don't want to comment at this point on what our plans uh, may or may not be with respect to John Bolton. But I will say this, uh, whether it's bef- in testimony before the House or it's in his book or it's in one form or another, the truth will come out, is, will continue to come out. Indeed, Margaret, one of the astounding things, and this shows you just how disingenuous uh, the president's uh, defense is, on Friday night at midnight, the president's lawyers at the Justice Department revealed to a court that they were withholding documents from the Office of Management and Budget showing uh, the personal motivations, we can only assume because they're communications involving the president, vice president, or top people around him, about the freeze. Now, they waited until midnight so that senators voting on whether to compel these documents would not have that, that information. That shows you the lengths to which the president's lawyers are going to cover this up. But they're going to fail. Indeed, they failed already.
1: Well, you know, you lost this vote on witnesses by just two Republicans. Two votes. Senator Lisa Murkowski, one of the uh, potential targets for you, um, said the articles of impeachment were rushed and flawed. She was looking at the work you did. And when she announced her vote against witnesses, she went on to say, given the partisan nature of this impeachment from the very beginning and throughout, I've come to the conclusion that there will be no fair trial in the Senate. I don't believe the continuation of this process will change anything. How do you respond to this?
2: Well, look, I would only say with respect to Senator Murkowski uh, and the other senators as well, they're not mere spectators here. Uh, when the senator laments that there's not a fair trial in the Senate, it's up to the senators to make it a fair trial. It is within their power to make it a fair trial. Uh, with four votes, with four courageous senators saying, no, we're going to demand a fair trial no matter what this president may say, uh, there would have been a fair trial. There would have been witnesses and testimony. But so is there anything you would have It's not as if she was powerless to do something about this. Uh, Look, there's nothing that I can see that we could have done differently because, as the senators have already admitted, we proved our case. We proved our case. Now, uh, the president's lawyers have said time and again, I think hoping through sheer repetition, to make something uh, true that is, in fact, untrue, that the process in this impeachment was different than in Nixon and Clinton. Uh, In fact, the president had the same due process rights, which he did not avail himself of in this process as in the prior ones. Uh, that is not an excuse that should be used by any senator for not uh, fulfilling their obligation to hold a fair trial. Uh, they're not spectators. Uh, they have control of the proceedings, and they could have insisted on witnesses and documents and for whatever reason chose not to. And for those who would say, well, let's let the voters decide when the president is trying to cheat in that very election, and they don't want the voters to have the full information, they want the president yeah. to continue to be able to cover it up, that's just completely unsatisfactory.
1: But you could have stuck with that subpoena of John Bolton that you initially, uh, of his uh, deputy, Charles Kupperman, that was seen as kind of a proxy for John Bolton that the House then pulled back from. And this is one of the chief criticisms of the case that you made, that you didn't take it to the courts, that the House could have had a win in its pocket and move this forward. How do you respond to that? Was it a, a misstep?
2: Well, first of all, yes. No, it wasn't at all. Um, And I think it's a disingenuous uh, argument for the president's lawyers to make uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, if we continued with litigation as we are doing at this moment with Don McGahn and we subpoenaed him nine months ago and we're still nowhere near a final resolution, it would probably be one to two years before we would have had a decision on John Bolton. Uh, That means the president would have been able to cheat in the next election with impunity because they could have simply delayed and played out the clock. But as we showed during the trial, it's worse than that, because while the president's lawyers are in court, uh, in, the, in the Senate court, saying the House should have made more efforts to overcome our obstructionism, they're making that remarkable argument, in court, on the very same day they were making that argument, in court, other Trump lawyers were saying, mm-hmm. Judge, you can't hear this case to compel uh, Don McGahn to testify because you're not empowered to enforce congressional subpoenas. So they are arguing out of both sides of their mouth. Uh, The senators could see that. The senators should not allow them to get away with that.
1: Chairman Schiff, thank you for joining us this morning. We'll be back in one minute with 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg. Stay with us. We're back with former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. He's kicking off his last day of campaigning in Iowa from Des Moines. Good morning to you.
6: Good morning. Good it to is, be with you.
1: Good to have you. It is a very tight race uh, out there in Iowa. It looks like a three way fight between you, Senator Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden. Looking at our latest battleground tracker poll here at CBS. Biden and Sanders are at 25 percent this morning. You are just a few points behind at 21 percent. How do you close the gap? How do you persuade moderates to vote for you instead of Biden?
6: Well, it's about making sure that we have the right approach to defeat Donald Trump. Uh, We don't have to choose between revolution and establishment. There is another way that I think will be the most effective for governing and for winning. Remember, Every single time my party has won the White House in the last half century, it's been with a candidate who was looking to the future, who was not uh, uh, associated with Washington, either didn't have an office there or hadn't had one for very long, and was opening a door to a new generation. And as I'm talking to Iowans on the ground, they are focused on how their lives are going to change if we get a better president. It's why there's such an emphasis on making sure that we have the campaign that can win against Donald Trump, and I will beat him.
1: Do you really think that trying to persuade people that experience is a negative is the best way to draw a differentiation between you and Biden?
6: Well, what I'd say is that if you are looking for the person with the most years spent in, in Washington, then of course you have your choice, and, and it's not going to be me. What I'm offering is a different perspective, formed on the ground, governing as an executive, but uh, also focused on bringing solutions from our communities to Washington. And I think that's the approach that most of the people I encounter are looking for. We're not going to be able to go up against this president looking to the same playbook. And by the way, this isn't just what we need in order for winning. This is what we need in order for governing.
1: Before you get to governing, though, you've got to win the horse race. Um, so it, how do you finish and how do you define success in Iowa? Is it top two?
6: I'll leave that to the pundits. But what I will say is it is, of course, very important for us to do well in Iowa. You know, the process of actually proving uh, that we can earn support, that we have the right kind of campaign organization, Uh, that we can turn folks out with enthusiasm, that starts right here tomorrow night, and and we're very aware of that. And that's why I'm not only going out there delivering this message to as many Iowans as I can get in front of, but we've also built a ground organization that uh, I'm very proud of, that uh, both in their approach and the way that they are dealing with people and in that message, I think is earning us support every day and uh, are going to build that uh, turn out that precinct organization that will help us succeed tomorrow.
1: You said it's important to do well. You're... Uh, advisors told reporters yesterday out there in Iowa uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to win in order to show you're viable for Super Tuesday. Is that your strategy? Skip ahead to those Super Tuesday states.
6: So again, advisors, analysts, and, and pundits can figure out where the goal well, These are. Your advisors to be. What I know who were is we need a very strong yesterday. showing. That's great. Campaign strategists will, uh, will focus on that. I'm focused on Iowans' lives and a message about making sure that we not only replace this president, but replace this president with somebody who is ready to deal with the issues from climate to gun violence to the changes in our economy that are deciding whether our lives are going to go well. Uh, We're counting on a good finish here in Iowa, uh, going straight to New Hampshire and on to uh, Nevada, South Carolina, and the other states.
1: All right, we're going to take a real quick break and come back with more of our conversation with Mayor Pete, so stay with us.
5: Delve into the shadows of the mind. That's SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery.
1: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We'll continue our conversation now with 2020 hopeful and former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, I want to read for you the latest Battleground Tracker poll numbers we have forecasting Super Tuesday. That is those 14 states that you were just talking about um, trying to build support. Looking at those numbers, you are at 5% support among Hispanics, 2% support among blacks. Why do you think it's a challenge for you when it comes to winning minority support?
6: Well, I'm competing against uh, uh, some candidates who have had years or decades to uh, demonstrate uh, who they are and how they can win. I recognize that I am newer on the scene. And, And we're at a time when no one is feeling the pain of living under this administration more than Americans of color. It's one of the reasons why there is such a focus on making sure uh, that we are the campaign that can bring an end to that and that can turn the page. But the process of proving that begins right here in Iowa, and this is our best first chance to demonstrate the kind of organizational strength that will help build credibility with folks I talk to, uh, especially when we're in the South, who may appreciate and like our plans, but also want to know that I'll be in a position to actually deliver, to defeat Donald Trump, and to make good on those plans.
1: How do you stay competitive in those Super Tuesday states when you already have Mike Bloomberg on the ground and spending tremendously uh, to build support? How do you stay competitive?
6: Well, there's no question that uh, uh, with that kind of money, you can get a level of exposure and airtime. uh, And uh, at the same time, uh, one of the things that uh, is so important, especially in this stage of the process, is that um, politics isn't just about what happens on television. Uh, We're having such important, moving conversations with voters who want to look you in the eye, ask you questions, understand who you are, challenge you. And I think that's the process that is ahead of us. Uh, it's one thing to arrive uh, arrive in the polls, arrive on the air, arrive on the scene. Uh, it's another to really go through that with voters. And even as the, uh, the map grows and we're competing in more and more states, uh, I think that will be uh, where each of us uh, makes our case. And I think that I've got the best case to make.
1: Well, you know, the Democratic National Committee uh, changed the debate requirements. They say they tighten them, but in doing so, they have opened the door to the possibility Mike Bloomberg could be on uh, a debate stage in the near future. Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, has taken issue with this change, and she's pointed out that the DNC refused to change the rules earlier, quote, to ensure good diverse candidates could remain on the debate stage. She's referring to Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. Do you think the field is less diverse because of the DNC?
6: Well, I share the concern about diversity, and uh, I don't envy the DNC's job of setting rules that campaigns like mine then have to compete under. Uh, But what I know is that we're going to take those rules as they come. I'm confident of qualifying, uh, and I think anybody who has a realistic shot at the presidency should have to stand next to their competitors, uh, defend, and make their case.
1: But the comment from Elizabeth Warren was fairly sharp, and she seems to be in some ways referring back to, uh, you know, some of the frustrations from 2016 when supporters of Bernie Sanders were saying, look, the system is rigged, the DNC is being unfair. Do you see that playing out again this time?
6: I don't see a, a thumb on the scale if that's what you're talking about. And again, I recognize the DNC's got a challenge, challenging job to do, but... Uh, I don't get a say in those rules. We compete under those rules. Uh, have from day one when uh, we weren't sure that my four, I had an exploratory committee with a staff of four, and we saw those requirements come out of the DNC and wondered if we were going to make the cut to be among those, those 20 candidates who made it onto that first debate stage and ever since have made sure that uh, we were in a position to, to compete. Uh, That's what we're doing right now, and I know that the DNC will continue uh, to set the parameters. What I will say uh, is that the less 2020 resembles 2016, the Mm -hmm. better.
1: Well, um, (laughs) Senator Sanders, uh, of course, was in that race last time. I know when we spoke, you and I... Uh, last you talked about an essay you wrote when you were 18 years old praising Bernie Sanders at the time for his energy, his candor, his conviction, and his ability to bring people together. What's changed now? Just your neck and neck with him? Now you're trying to name him in your rallies <laughs> and, and lay out why he's not the best guy.
6: Look, I still admire the qualities that uh, I admired about him when I was in high school. But uh, we're at a moment right now where our country is dangerously, frighteningly polarized and divided. And we're at a moment where we have an amazing historic majority to do big things. I mean, even more than the majority that was available to President Obama, let's say, 10 years ago, among the American people right now, there is a strong appetite to step up and, for example, solve the health care issue. It's just that people aren't crazy about the idea of being kicked off their plans. There's a huge uh, appetite right now to Dude, the biggest transformation we've had on college affordability since the G.I. bill. It's just that some Americans aren't crazy about the idea of paying even for the tuition of the children of of millionaires and billionaires. But you you praised his ability to bring people together then. You don't
1: think he can bring people together now?
6: I think I'm the best candidate to bring people together now. And what we're seeing on the trail, including as I travel to counties here in Iowa that uh, swung in a big way from supporting President Obama to supporting President Trump, Uh, is that not only uh, do we have uh, Democrats dyed-in-the-wool progressives at our events, but we're seeing independents and a lot of people who self-identify as those future former Republicans I like to talk about Mm -hmm. in my speeches coming together, not pretending we agree on absolutely everything, but ready for a change, and actually uh, as united in what it is we're for as what it is we're against.
1: Who's your Super Bowl pick? Uh,
6: Well, I'm from the Midwest, so uh, I've got an affinity for the Chiefs.
1: All right. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thanks very much. We'll be right back with the head of the Republican National Committee.
5: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
4: There really is no place like home.
5: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
1: Joining us now is the head of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel. Good morning. Good to have you here. Good morning. Great to be here. So President Trump uh, will be the first American president to run for re-election after having been impeached. How do you turn that into an asset?
7: Well, we're already seeing it. as an asset with our base. We've added 600,000 new small online donors since this impeachment began. We're seeing his approval ratings tick up. We're seeing independents come our way because the American people recognize this hasn't been bipartisan. This hasn't been um, held to the standard we've seen with past presidents. And they really view it as Democrats pushing their agenda against a president they never wanted to see elected to begin with. And they fought him every step of the way. And And then they see the president signing the phase one deal with China, signing USMCA. He's governing while they're continuing to resist, and I think it's working in his favor.
1: So you've been fundraising off of impeachment, but um, the RNC is also picking up the tab, isn't it true, for some of the president's legal defense, his his lawyers? This is instead of creating some kind of fund like Bill Clinton did when he was impeached. Why did the RNC choose to do it this way? Well,
7: we do have a legal fund that is specifically for these types of things. It's not taking away from our ground game or helping with re-election and our infrastructure we're building in the states. It's specifically for legal expenses. And guess what? We're paying for it and not the taxpayers. The Democrats are doing this on the taxpayer dime. They're not getting the things done that the American people want. And we're helping to pay for some of these costs because... We don't want to see our president impeached. We think he should be reelected. And that's what the majority of our supporters and investors feel at the RNC as well.
1: Do you know what the cost has been?
7: I don't know what the cost has been.
1: Um, So I want to ask you about some of the polls, your home state in particular out there in Michigan. An epic MRA poll shows that out there, President Trump trails all five top Democratic candidates. Who do you think is the toughest candidate? for President Trump Trump to beat. Joe Biden says you're scared to death of it.
7: <laughs> well, I'll just say this, our internal polling where we've been in all these states, our analytics which is more accurate, shows the president in very good shape in all of these states. Uh, I am not concerned about any of them. Nobody has become the presumptive frontrunner. You're actually seeing more people get in the race. Uh, you're seeing an energy problem for Biden. You have a huge issue with his national security stances as vice president. And then with Bernie, he's gone way too far with talking about taking away people's um, health care plans and taking a, a government control of health care. So we're going to be good against any of them because we have a record that the president can run on of 7 million jobs, wages going up. And you see in poll after poll that you do see uh, people feel good about the economy. Mm. They know that they're better off than they were four years ago. And that's what we're going to get to run on.
1: And you think that's your strongest argument, the economy?
7: It's a huge argument. I mean, people have more money. They Mm. feel better about their future. Uh, They can send their kids to college. Their kids can get jobs after college. These are things that the American voter cares about.
1: But President Trump has already tweeted quite a lot in the past 12 hours or so, about Mike Bloomberg. Uh, He told Fox, as well, he would love to run against him. Michael Bloomberg's already spent a quarter of a billion dollars on his uh, advertising around his campaign. President Trump has spent just slightly over $50 million. How concerned are you, not just about Bloomberg himself, but what he's building in terms of an operation that he says he will hand off to any Democrat
7: who wins the nomination? Well he's building an outside operation outside of the party, which is like a super PAC essentially, once he's not a candidate. I'm not concerned about that. From a party structure, we're working with our state parties, our county parties, our district committees. We're able to coordinate directly with the candidate. It's not an outside group. And the RNC is already on the ground in 18 states. We've already trained 500,000 volunteers. We're going into 2020 with $200 million between us and the, and the Trump campaign. So we are building the biggest infrastructure in the history of politics. I'm not concerned about what Bloomberg's putting out and his ads, I see them all the time. I think they're terrible. Mike gets it done. What does he get done? I don't know. I don't know anything about him. We're not seeing him um, talking to the voters at the level that I think you need to, to be competitive. And the president's not afraid of anybody. Let's be honest. He punches at everybody. (laughs) Fair, but... Mike Bloomberg has tremendous spending ability. He does. He's not putting
1: limits really on what he's willing to do to defeat President Trump. He's worth sixty billion dollars and he's gonna
7: hand this off, even if it's not him. Well President Trump went up against Hillary Clinton, who had significantly more money than he did. We've seen candidate after candidate with these huge war chests come in and think they can buy an election, and the American people don't like that. And President Trump, if you look at the crowds that we're seeing, which are bigger than ever, 150,000 people signed up to come to a rally in New Jersey, mm-hmm. in blue New Jersey. If you look at the fundraising, but if you look he's at modeling the enthusiasm, a lot of what he's doing
1: around what Trump did—it's a lot of digital. Yeah.
7: It's a lot of
1: TV. He's modeling yet, it, but I he's think. not
7: Trump. That's That's the big factor. Bloomberg is not Trump. He's not going to get a crowd like that. I'd like to see him do a rally and try and even get 100 people to come. I mean, this is not the movement candidate Bloomberg. And I think he's got a real issue with the Democrat Party. I mean, listen, they just changed their debate rules and their structure for a billionaire, and they refused to do it uh, when you had Cory Booker and Julian Castro saying, listen, we deserve more diversity on the stage representing our party. And they said, no, we're not going to change the rules for you. But this billionaire can buy his way into the debate. Bloomberg had every ability to change the way he was raising money to qualify for the debates, but they're changing the rules for the billionaire. And I think that speaks volumes about the Democrat Party.
1: I want to ask you, though, about President Trump's relationship with, I mean, he's reshape the party. But there are still traditional Republicans who aren't entirely comfortable with everything he does, including your uncle, Senator Mitt Romney, who voted for witnesses. He was one of only two Republicans who did so in this impeachment trial. The Conservative Political Action Conference has disinvited him from an upcoming meeting, and they're kind of, they put up this ad online. There are TV ads against him. I mean, do you think this is proper? Political retaliation?
7: I, I disagree that? that the president's changed the Republican Party. I think the president strengthened our party. And if you look at things did, that I he's I don't know done, if you saw
1: that ad, but it was your uncle's face I there. I haven't this seen the disinvited ad. Disinvited, not invited. <laughs>
7: Well, that's the grassroots part of our party, and they're upset. They're upset when people aren't supporting the president and supporting our party, and and they think if you're not supporting him, you're helping a Democrat get elected. That's a very common uh, belief among the grassroots of our party. But I will say this president has stood for life. He stood for rule of law judges. He stood for tax cuts. He stood for deregulation, energy independence. These are Republican ideals, and he has made the RNC significantly stronger by supporting our party, and we will be stronger after him because of the investment he's put in data and digital and the things to make us strong beyond his presidency.
1: Okay. I understand you don't want to comment on your comfort and your uncle and the comments about him, but we do have to leave it there. Uh, Good to have you here. Great to be here. In studio. We'll be back in a moment with a look at how the Democratic race is shaping up in Iowa. Welcome back. Ahead of the Iowa caucuses tomorrow, we have a new CBS News battleground tracker this morning looking at the state of the race. These numbers are based on polling data from our surveys this week, along with data on Iowa's voters and the caucus system. Former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders are tied at the top of the field with 25 percent each. Former South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg is close behind with 21 percent. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren's at 16 percent. And Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar has five percent support. Joining us now to make sense of these numbers is CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto. So, Anthony, what do we need to look for? What do we need to keep an eye on?
8: Yeah, now the fun starts. Now we get to the real (laughs) stuff. Your fun starts. Well, it's going to be a late night, I think. But here's what we wanted to do. We took everything we knew about the the interviews we've had with Iowa voters and caucus goers and how a caucus works and everything we know about the Democrats in Iowa. And we put it all together and we say, "Okay, what could unfold tomorrow night? Well, what breaks this tie for Joe Biden? This depends a lot on first knowing how a caucus works. People are going to go in with a first preference, who they plan to support. But if their candidate doesn't do well enough, doesn't make what the party sets as this 15% threshold, Mm -hmm. then they can switch. And Joe Biden is the second choice for a lot of people whose candidates very well might fall under that threshold. He could benefit from that. So if those folks move over to him, that gives him a boost. And there's another thing that could help Joe Biden too. And that is in our measures, we see that his support is pretty evenly distributed across the state. That is important because to win the caucuses, you have to win delegates throughout the state. You can't just run up the score in one or two cities, and that could help Joe Biden, too.
1: But he's neck and neck right now with Bernie Sanders.
8: He is, but that would give him a boost. Now, let me tell you about how Bernie Sanders might instead get the boost. Mm -hmm. First thing is that... Elizabeth Warren comes into play here because she's right near just above that key 15% threshold line that the party sets. If she doesn't make that in some of those caucuses, her supporters could switch to Bernie Sanders. He's their second choice. That could give Sanders a boost. And the other thing that's going to be interesting here is that in our modeling, Bernie Sanders gets strong support in and around the cities in Iowa. Now, we could see a turnout boost for him there, which could help him at least in the statewide overall vote, Mm -hmm. but he's going to have to spread out that support in order to get delegates everywhere.
1: And what about Mayor Pete Buttigieg, he's at 21 percent, right behind Biden and Bernie.
8: Yep. Also could benefit from some of the switching. Also could benefit if folks who are supporters of, let's say it's Amy Klobuchar, or let's say it's some of the other candidates who may not make that 15 percent threshold. If they switch and some of them go to Biden, but more of them go to Pete Buttigieg, this is the same also true for Elizabeth Warren, then that gives them a boost as well. All of which is to underline that in a caucus meeting, a lot of this movement is what makes the the night so exciting. Anyway,
1: and you're prepared with the coffee for a late night. You said
8: yes. I think everybody should tune in, <laughs> watch <laughs> CBS News and CBS uh, CBS uh, CBSN, and uh, and and put another pot of coffee on and stay up with us. Uh,
1: our, all right, Anthony Salvanta, thank you. And now we turn to our political correspondent, Ed O'Keefe, who is out in Des Moines. He is fully caffeinated. And Ed, uh, what are you seeing out there on the ground?
3: (laughs) Margaret, it's fascinating. You know, voters are often asked to, to, or they sort of debate between their head and their heart over who exactly they should ultimately choose. And this has very much become, I think, a head contest for many Iowa Democrats, if you're somebody who supports Bernie Sanders, you're pretty much there. You're ready to go. It's everybody else that is still struggling with this. And we've been struck in recent days how they're all focused on making clear to voters that they believe they can defeat the president, whether they're doing that in their advertising or on the stump.
1: And that's interesting because it's not so much about be excited about me. It's about be excited about my electability
3: and defeating the other guy. Um, so how do they make exactly. that work? And, and we sure well let's let's walk through a few examples for the start with the former vice president joe biden he has completely Uh, stop talking about his Democratic opponents. It's as if he's already running against the president, most recently now raising questions about his fitness to serve by recalling what he said recently about injured service members in Iraq, uh, and even now questioning the administration's response to the coronavirus, uh, not only here in the United States, but around the world. Mayor Buttigieg, who you spoke to earlier, just in the last few days suddenly is reminding his supporters that there are other candidates in this race, because he hasn't talked about them at all until recently pointing out that if you're looking for somebody who's spent 40 years in Washington, Joe Biden is your guy, but Bernie Sanders can't necessarily unite the Democratic Party, and Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for all ideas are just not practical. So interesting that he's doing that. Sanders, if he pulls it off, again, his volunteers are just so devoted to him. They've come from all over the country to be here. We've met with some of them who've come from Oregon, from Kentucky, from Queens and Brooklyn to be here. And one thing to watch on caucus night... If turnout gets close to 300,000 in this state, that would be a record high. Most of that will be because Bernie Sanders turned them out. And the other thing to watch for is a potential increase in Latino support. It's a very small percentage of this state, mostly agricultural workers. But the Sanders campaign has been after them since last spring. The first piece of mail he sent to an Iowa voter was to Latino households in this state talking up his own immigrant roots. And in another sign of how desperate they are, Senator Warren has stopped taking selfies with her supporters (laughs) and instead has turned over the responsibilities to her dog. (laughs) because she needs to get on to other events. The selfie lines can run for several hours at times, but they've given up because she needs to get on to other events and meet as many people as she can before she goes back to Washington.
1: So being a dog lover is now uh, a requirement in some way. Um, we've spent a lot of time talking to even the RNC chairwoman just now about Michael Bloomberg and his seeming war chest that is unending and his ability to compete. He's not there in Iowa. He's betting that doesn't matter ultimately. What is the feeling? Is that going to play right. he out? That's right.
3: Well, it's funny. Just in the last few days, Margaret, we've noticed that he now is advertising in Iowa, as if to sort of remind Democrats that after this caucus there's still uh, a primary contest that will continue playing out. He is very much in the back of the minds, at least, of these campaigns who realize that with his unlimited war chest, he could seriously put them away on Super Tuesday, Uh, especially a challenge for these candidates now who may only have about, uh, you know, seven figures in the bank, when Mike Bloomberg can write seven-figure checks, you know, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and and make some moves. And so it's something that they're very much worried about. The one who's actually calling him out most explicitly on the trail is Senator Warren, who continues to raise concerns, as you've pointed out already today, uh, about the fact that yet another billionaire is in the race.
1: Only seven figures in the bank, Ed says. Um, So it it still looks fluid is, is the bottom line from what I'm hearing from you, though.
3: Okay. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. it, we, we've okay. talked to, to people who are making their final decisions this weekend, and, uh, and they'll have to do it by tomorrow night. All right, Ed. We'll be
1: right back with a look at that selfie-taking dog out in Iowa, Ed was just telling you about. Four Democratic senators competing in Iowa unable to campaign this past week. There were a lot of fill-ins or surrogates out stumping for them in their absence. No surrogate caught more attention than this furry one. Bailey, Elizabeth Warren's golden retriever. Bailey worked the crowd, and when Warren did return to the trail this weekend, Bailey took her place in the selfie line. Warren has taken over 100,000 selfies with voters so far in this campaign, and she finally enlisted some help. And we'll find out tomorrow if Bailey... Helps his owner with Iowa voters. That's it for today. Thank you all for watching. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, House Impeachment Manager Adam Schiff, Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, and Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington.
0: Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
5: Look around. You can find cars like these on Autotrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Autotrader.